All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you guys for being here this morning. My name is Reggie. Um, if you don't know me, I'm one of, the, uh, one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Redemption. And I trust that over the last few days, you guys have had a great Thanksgiving holiday. Um, lots of food, lots of time with family. I know there are lots of people traveling home today um, from all over the place. And, uh, and they're going to be sad that, that they didn't get to be here with us this morning. Um, so thank you guys for being here this morning. We are continuing on, or we're actually finishing, our study of First Peter. So for the last few months here at Redemption, we've been going through the book of First Peter in a series that we've called Set Apart. And so today we're going to look at the last three verses of First Peter chapter 5 um, and finish out this series. Next Sunday, we'll actually start our uh, Advent series uh, leading up towards Christmas and the celebration of Christ's birth. But again, like I said, thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, glad that we can be together. Uh, we're going to finish out our time in First Peter, and it's going to be good. Um, but as we get started, let me pray for us. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be present in this place today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of First Peter. Thank you that we've been able to just spend a lot of time examining what you would have for us in this book. And God, as we close it out this morning, as we look at these last few verses, I pray that you would be at work in our, uh, in our hearts and in our minds to draw us to yourself. God, I pray that in this place that Jesus would continue to be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. Holy Father, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. I pray that we would hear your words. I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. So let us hear your words. Let us be drawn to you. And Holy Father, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you guys will remember back with me a few weeks, um, I started off this series uh, several months ago. Um, I had the fortune of, of preaching the first uh, first sermon we did on First Peter, and as we began this series, I asked you guys this question. Um, if I were to ask you who you are, what would your answer be? That was the very first question we asked. If I were to say, who are you, what would your answer be? What would your answer be based on? Would it be based on what you do for a living? Would it be based on some role you have as a parent or a child or a spouse or a brother, sister, whatever it might be? Would it be based on your education? Would it be based on your race? Would it be based on your sexuality? Would it be based on your nation of origin? If I were to ask you, who are you, what would your answer be? And part of the reason for that was because First Peter has something very specific to say about who we are in Christ. And so now that we've been in First Peter for some amount of time, if I were to ask you that question again... Would your answer be any different? Is there anything that's happened as we've studied 1 Peter together that would change the way you answer that question? Right? If I were to open the floor right now and ask for feedback on what we've learned about identity and purpose and suffering and holiness and all those sorts of things and how that plays into who we are as a people of God, what would I hear back from you guys? Is anybody brave enough to speak up? Anybody? Should I put somebody on the spot? No? What would I hear back from you guys if I were to ask that 
question. I hope that your answer to that question would be different now that we spend a little bit of time in 1 Peter. So like I said, we're going to close out our time this morning in 1 Peter by looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. So if you want to go ahead and flip there uh, in your Bibles, if you have them, they'll also be up on the screen. These verses will also be up on the screen. Um, but 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And this is what this passage says. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Before we really get going in this text this morning, let me um, sort of dispense of some of the mystery surrounding these weird names, right, that we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Uh, one of the first names we see is uh, Silvanus. And let me just say that um, who these people are doesn't really play into the meaning of the text that I'll get into in a second, but I think it's important to see how they play into the bigger picture of the New Testament. So I just want to highlight it real briefly. Um, first name mentioned is Silvanus. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, this person is known as Silas. Uh, you've heard of Silas. Um, Silas works with Peter. We see him working with Peter here. But Silas was also a part of Paul's teams as Paul went on missionary journeys in the New Testament. So if you read through the New Testament, you see Pilate, Silas mentioned in Acts, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in the book of um, 1 Thessalonians. So that's who... Uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians. Uh, a lot of people believe that Silvanus was acting as Peter's secretary, and that's why Peter uh, mentions him here, that Peter sort of dictated this book to Silvanus, and he wrote it down. Um, or the other alternative is that Silvanus was simply carrying this letter to the churches that Peter is writing to. Either way, Silvanus is involved. Peter trusts him. Peter calls him a faithful brother. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, he was also working with Paul in the early church. Uh, the second name mentioned here is she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Um, most modern scholars think that this is a reference to the church at Babylon, I mean to the church at Rome. Uh, the Greek word for church is ecclesia. Uh, it's a feminine word, and so it would be natural to refer to the church as she. Uh, plus, we know that the church is the bride of Christ. That's what a lot of people think. There are a couple of alternative thoughts who think that Peter is actually talking about his wife and she lives near the ancient city of Babylon. Um, that thought is out there. Not real sure that we can know one way or the other. Most modern people think that Peter is talking about the church at Rome and that Peter is writing from Rome. And that's why he mentions the church at Babylon. Um, the third name is Mark. Most modern scholars believe this is the same John Mark that traveled with Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. If you know that story, he's first mentioned in Acts 12. Uh, I think that's the first mention. Um, he left Paul at some point on bad terms. Uh, at some point, he was reconciled to Paul. And now, later on, he's working with Peter. Um, the early church believed that it was this Mark, referenced here in 1 Peter, that wrote the gospel of Mark. And uh, if you go, and, and if that's the case, right, if you go and you read through Mark, then all of a sudden you see Peter 
as a primary source for the Gospel of Mark, and it makes a lot of sense when you read Mark. Um, there's another alternative um, strain of thought that thinks that Peter's actually talking about his son, who is also named Mark. Right? There's no way for us to really know what's happening there, but more than likely, what most people think, Peter's writing from Rome, he mentions the church at Rome, he mentions the person that's carrying the letter to the churches that he's writing to, and he mentions Mark, John Mark, um, who at some point became very important in the work that Peter was about. So I just want you guys to know that, how that fits into the bigger picture of the New Testament. But let's back up for a second, and let's talk about the bigger picture of 1 Peter. As we've moved through 1 Peter, we've examined a lot of topics. We've examined a lot of themes that run throughout this book. We've talked about how God sets us apart with a new identity for his purposes, right? That's why we call the series Set Apart. We've talked about how God has called us to be holy. We've talked about how God has called us to be a new priesthood that pursues holiness in our lives, even as much as life is messy and difficult. How God calls us to live counterculturally, even as the culture around us rejects Christ. We've talked about how God calls us to be holy in those mundane experiences of everyday life that cause us to be frustrated and irritated and impatient. Um, the daily struggle of, of marriage and being a citizen and being in the workforce and all these other things. We've talked about how God gives us awesome grace for suffering. There's a lot of suffering in 1 Peter. A lot of suffering going on in 1 Peter. How God gives grace for suffering, and we've talked about how that suffering is for our own good, because through that suffering, God restores his people, conforms his people to his image, strengthens his people, establishes his people. We've talked about how God calls us to live together as a community of faith. We even talked about that last week, as Ben talked through, talked through the, the first part of chapter 5 last week. We've talked about these things over and over and over, and I hope that we're getting it, right? I hope that First Peter has changed how we think of who we are in Christ. I hope that First Peter has changed how we view suffering. I hope that First Peter has changed what it means for us to pursue holiness together. And this morning, in verses 12 through 14, Peter is bringing all of this to a conclusion inasmuch as he's been emphasizing these different topics throughout the book. If you have to remember, um, when this letter was first sent, it would have been read as an entire letter. So what we've talked about for weeks now on Sunday mornings would have all been read at one time. They would have heard the whole letter. They would have heard all these themes. They would have heard all these things coming together. And then Peter concluding what he's writing. Let me read it again. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Right? These words are a final greeting. And in the study of 1 Peter, they're often overlooked, um, because it's a little different than the rest of the book. It really is just a final greeting. It's not really a conclusion or a summary. It's a final greeting. But I think there are some very important words and some very important phrases for us to pick up on 
from 1 Peter in these last few verses. And so what I want to do is just talk through some of those words that Peter uses, talk about how they play out in the book of 1 Peter, look at a couple of phrases that are there, and just sort of think through those things for a minute. In these last three verses, Peter uses these words, exhorting, declaring, true grace of God, stand firm in it, greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all who are in Christ. Right, the first thing I want to look at is this word declaring. Peter says that he is declaring the true grace of God. This is an interesting word because in the English, we might miss a certain connotation that exists in the Greek. When you see this word as it's used in the original Greek language, it has the connotation of declaring something, but declaring it as a witness, declaring it as testimony, declaring it as something that is true because the author, the person speaking, has actually lived it and experienced it and been a part of it. It has the connotation of firsthand knowledge of what is being written about. Right In the modern church, we would say that we're testifying to something. We're giving testimony to something. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's not writing in hypotheticals. He's talking about reality. This past Friday, uh, I had lunch with my parents. It was uh, my parents and Amy and I and my two girls and my brothers and sisters weren't able to be there on Friday. Um, but it was just us. And my mom made this incredible dessert that I love so much. It's her own, like, Oreo ice cream. It's her own. It's not really homemade, but she takes a bunch of stuff and mixes it together, refreezes it, and it's incredible. And I could stand here and talk to you about how when you take a bite, every bite has Oreo in it, and it's just so delicious. And I could talk about it on and on and on, but what would be much better for you is to actually taste the ice cream, right, to taste the Oreo ice cream. And if you didn't like it, I would think there was something wrong with you. Um, but that's sort of what Peter is getting at here. Over and over in 1 Peter, uh, he uses this imagery from Psalm chapter 34 where, um, where the psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. This shows up in 1 Peter over and over. And, and that's the idea here. Peter has tasted, Peter has seen that the Lord is good and that what he's writing about is true. So when Peter says that God has set us apart and he's done that for a purpose, well, Peter has recognized why he's set apart and recognized what his purpose is. When he says that God calls us to pursue holiness in the messiness of life, it's because Peter has been called to pursue holiness in the messiness of life. When Peter calls us to suffer well for our own benefit, for God's glory, that we might experience God's grace in that, it's because Peter has suffered. Right? Peter is writing as a testimony to what he's experienced. He's writing as a testimony to the true grace of God. Peter says, I'm uh, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so when Peter writes about the true grace of God, he is essentially saying that everything I have written to you stands under God. It's from God. It's for you but it has its origin in God and God alone, right? And if we correctly understand grace as it's presented throughout Scripture, then we begin to see that grace is God's pursuit of our undeserved good. Grace is God's pursuit 
of our undeserved good. That's a, that's a, a, a big picture of what grace means in Scripture. Uh, Paul, in other places, sums it up the same way. It's God pursuing our good, even when we have not merited that favor, even when we have not deserved any good from God whatsoever. And so Peter says, essentially, all that I have written to you, that is the true grace of God. All that I've written to you is God pursuing our undeserved good. All that Peter has said about identity and being set apart and living holy and suffering and all that other stuff, all of that stuff, as we live it, as we embrace it, as we trust that it's true and good for us, that's God pursuing our good. It's God pursuing our good. Look, let's just look for a minute at how Peter talks about grace throughout this letter and let's see how it plays out. In 1 Peter 1.10 he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, right? Peter is saying that all that the prophets wrote about, all that the prophets look forward to, what the Old Testament looks forward to, it's grace in Jesus. In 1 Peter 1, 13, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' first coming was all about grace. Well, his second coming is going to be all about grace as well. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. There, there's grace for the here and now. There's grace for the stuff of life, for marriage and living together. That's grace. That's God pursuing our good. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As we serve one another as a body of faith, as a family, as we serve one another, that's God pursuing our good, both for those we're serving and for ourselves. And finally, 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering. That's God's grace too. Because in it and through it, God restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes his people. Peter said that I am writing to declare to you, to exhort and to declare to you the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In the original Greek, it actually says, in it, stand firm. In it, in the true grace of God, stand firm. The fact that Peter references the true grace of God makes me think on some level that we can misunderstand grace in such a way that it appears to be false, or such a way that it comes across as false. The, the fact that Peter says true grace of God, he doesn't just say the grace of God, he says the true grace of God. And, and I actually think that there are other places in the New Testament where we see grace sort of um, misunderstood. Jude, the book of Jude verse 4 says this, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people 
who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They turn grace into license for sin. Uh, if we were to use an old King James word, we would say they turn grace into licentiousness. It's possible to have an incorrect understanding of God's grace. It's possible to misunderstand it. Um, Amy's grandmother is here this morning with her aunt. And Amy's grandmother and her grandfather used to have a farm uh, out near Wrens and Keysville, sort of south of Augusta. And uh, several years ago, I don't remember if it was around Thanksgiving or it was around uh, Christmas, um, Amy's grandfather decided that we were going to fry a turkey. Um, and if you knew uh, Amy's grandfather, he was, um, he was always in charge, right? Retired Navy guy, retired construction, just was always in charge, always knew what to do, uh, always was willing to tell you what to do to make things happen correctly. And so he decided we were going to fry a turkey. Um, and so we set up the turkey fryer, got the oil in there, cut on the flame, and uh, put the thermometer in there. And there were a couple of us sitting around watching the thermometer. And uh, the oil didn't get hotter, right? The, the thermometer just stayed exactly like it was. And so I was like, it needs more heat. So turn up the heat a little more. And uh, the thermometer stayed exactly like it was. And so I thought... It needs more heat. Turn up the heat a little more. Well, it wasn't very long after that that the oil just erupted into this huge flame, um, going like 20 feet into the air, right into the trees. People are running around screaming. Amy came out. I'm going to make fun of Amy for a minute. She came out of the house with a box of baking soda, like to pour on the fire. It's a 20-foot fire. Not going to happen. Um, we finally get the fire put out. And uh, we ended up, I think, going to Hardee's to get chicken or something because we couldn't <laughs> cook a turkey. The point being, we misunderstood the situation. It wasn't that the oil wasn't getting hotter. It was that the thermometer was broken, right? We completely misread and misunderstood the situation. And so I think what Peter might be getting at here or uh, what we might should take away from what Peter is saying is that it's possible to get grace wrong. It's possible to misunderstand grace. Grace isn't there just for us to do whatever we want. The true grace of God. Peter has written so that we might have a correct understanding of God's grace rather than to misunderstand it. And a correct understanding of God's grace means that we understand that God is the origin of that grace. We are the recipient of that grace. And the true grace of God is what enables us to stand firm in the grace of God. Now, stay with me on this for a second. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? Grace, properly understood, is something that saves us from trying to work our way into a right relationship with God. It saves us from trying to work our way into favor. At the same time, grace saves us for something, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It saves us for good works. We're not saved as a result of good works, but for good works. True grace, the true 
grace that Peter is writing about is a grace that allows us to stand firm in what Christ has called us to. Right? If we get grace right, we understand it as both pardon from sin, and we all get that. But we should also see that it is power to stand and to be holy, exactly as Peter is calling us to do throughout 1 Peter. Grace is about pardon, but it's also about power. Grace is about pardon from sin, but it's also about standing firm in what God has called us to. Right? The opposite of standing here that Peter uses is falling. True grace, God's grace, properly understood, allows us to stand in what God has called us to rather than to fall away from that. This whole letter is about the grace that saves us. It's about the grace that enables us to stand firm, even as much as Peter is calling us to do that very thing, right? Over and over and over in 1 Peter, which is going to lead us to the next word that we're going to look at in a minute. Peter uses the word exhorting. He says he's writing to exhort them. But let me just back up for a second. We've used the language of identity and mission a lot through 1 Peter. Grace is right on board with that. It's pardon and it's power. It's Jesus, God changing us to be his own, setting us apart to be his own, and then sending us on mission and enabling us to be on mission. Exhorting. Part of what Peter says that he's doing here is exhorting. He says exhorting, or essentially says, I've written briefly to you exhorting. The way that we've broken down 1 Peter, or the way that Peter is broken down for us, there are 105 verses in 1 Peter. There are 35 different verses in 1 Peter that have some sort of exhortation to do something in them. Uh, One third, essentially, of the verses in 1 Peter are telling us to do something. To do something because we stand in God's grace. Uh, See if you remember these things, right? Hope fully, be holy, conduct yourselves in fear, love each other, be subject, honor everyone, keep your tongue from evil, honor Christ as holy, be self-controlled, rejoice, don't be surprised about the fiery trials, entrust yourself to God, clothe yourselves with humility, resist the devil, stand in grace, greet one another with a kiss of love. These are all exhortations in Peter to do something But they're exhortations to do something because we have experienced God's grace, because we've been pardoned by God's grace, and because God's grace gives us the power to do exactly what Peter is calling us to do. Two more things to look at in 1 Peter. Um, In 1 Peter here, or 1 Peter chapter 5, one of the last things he says is greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, when Peter says to greet one another with the kiss of love, what, what does he actually mean? And it's worth diving into for a second, right? So does Peter mean that actually every time believers see one another, they're to kiss one another? Does he mean, does, is that what he means? Does he mean that if I were to walk out of that room and go get a cup of coffee at New Moon, and then I'm to come back in here, that I'm to greet all of you with the kiss of love? How awkward would that get? Like, real fast, that would get so weird, right? And when we came into the room this morning, did, did we recognize each other as believers and begin to kiss one another? It, it, it just doesn't culturally work, 
I, I don't think. And, and, and so I guess what I'm getting at is that maybe Peter has something deeper for us to examine here. Peter doesn't give us any instructions on how often to kiss. He doesn't give us instructions on um, how to kiss. Do we kiss each other on the hand? Do we kiss each other on the lips? Do we kiss each other on the cheek? Like, so what is Peter actually getting at? And I, and I think it goes a little further, and I think we need to take it a little further than, than just kissing. We need to go a little deeper with it, right? And so just if we remember about First Peter and all that we've talked about, Peter is writing to a church that is suffering. Peter is writing to a church who is being persecuted. Um, Peter is writing to a church who, who the outside world um, does not have a positive view necessarily of that church. And so there's suffering and persecution all around, right? In addition to that, life is just hard, right? We live in a fallen world and life is hard. Uh, sanctification, becoming more like Christ, being holy like Peter has called us to do, it's hard, especially when it involves suffering. Rejection and opposition is hard. And so I think part of what Peter is calling us to here is to have a sensitivity and a love for one another even as much as we struggle with the suffering of life and just the hardship of life in a fallen world, right? There's no way you're going to avoid it. Somehow, some way, trouble is going to enter your door just like it was doing for these Christians that Peter is writing to. Be it, be it be persecution like these people were facing or sickness or cancer or death or infertility or broken relationships or divorce or financial trouble or whatever. Trouble is going to come into your door. You're going to have trouble because we live in a fallen world. And we're fallen people, saved only by the grace of God. And, and so reaching out to one another and saying, I know that you're carrying heavy burdens. What burden can I carry for you? Th this week, what burden can I carry for you? Because I love you and I want to help you bear the weight of that suffering and that burden that you're under. Can you imagine if we actually did that to one another? W what if just once a Sunday... Just once every time we're together as a church, we were to say to somebody, I know how heavy life is. What burden can I bear for you? How can I help you? Think of the way that it would change who we are. Think of how different we would be as a church and as a people. If just a couple of times we did this. Think of the encouragement that would happen. Right? It's such a little thing. But Peter says... Greet one another with the kiss of love. Maybe, maybe what Peter is calling us to is to be cognizant of the fact that life is hard, we're suffering, and maybe we need to love one another, right? Why do we have to be so busy? Why do we have to be so preoccupied and formal and distant and uncaring? Because do you know who walks into this place every Sunday morning? Who walks into this place every Sunday morning are needy, broken people who live in a dirty, broken world. Right? That's who we are. We're people beaten up by the struggles of life. We walk in here. We limp in here. We weep together in here. We're broken together in here. We stumble in here. And that gives us a perfect opportunity 
to love one another, to greet one another with the kiss of love. And maybe that's exactly what Peter is getting at here. Finally, Peter ends this letter with these words, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. If you remember back to me, or if you remember back with me, to the very beginning of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2, through 2, Peter writes this, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter ends his letter by talking about grace and peace. Peter begins the letter by talking about grace and peace. He, he begins and ends the letter by talking about the same things. And what we should pick up on, though, is that Peter says, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Meaning, that grace and that peace are for those who are in Christ. And so the call for us this morning is to trust that Jesus' way is best. The call for us this morning is to trust that Jesus is best. And that's how that grace and peace is multiplied to us through Jesus. What Peter calls us to is best. Because he's calling us to Jesus. He's calling us to trust Jesus. Peter is a living testimony to what he is saying. Peter has had great successes and great failures. And we know that just from reading throughout the New Testament. That Peter who has had great successes and incredible failures is calling us through Jesus to see how he saw and to trust how he trusted. Do you remember some of the failures of Jesus? I mean, some of the failures of Peter, not Jesus. Can we strike that from the record? You remember some of the failures of Peter? Peter's walking on water with Jesus, and he begins to doubt, and he begins to sink. Do you remember when uh, the guards came to arrest Jesus, right? Peter takes out his sword and cuts off somebody's ear because he didn't trust that Jesus' way is best. Jesus is dying. He's, he's being crucified. He's being tried and crucified. And Peter is denying Jesus because he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to believe that what Jesus is doing is best. And he doesn't want to be affiliated with Jesus in that moment. But Peter is a living testimony to the fact that Jesus' way is best for us. That Peter who failed repeatedly ends up writing this incredibly relevant and important letter to the church in order that we might believe that what God has for us is better than what we'd have for ourselves. That we would simply trust that Jesus' way is best. Here's, here's the truth. As a church, if we if we fail to believe that Jesus' way is best for us, if we fail to believe that what Scripture calls us to is right and good, and we decide to go about things our own way, then we're going to die as a church. As an individual, there's some truth there too. We trust that Jesus is best, 
we trust that his way is best. Or we don't. And instead of that grace and peace being multiplied to you, your experience of life will be drastically different. Not a life of peace and joy, but a life of misery. Right? The good news is that Jesus can enable us to believe and to trust and to experience that what God has for us is best, just like he did for Peter. And that's the call of 1 Peter on our life, to trust Jesus for the first time. To say, Jesus, I've never trusted you. I've never submitted my life to you. I don't really understand what this means, right? Uh, That's what Peter's calling us to. Peter is also calling us back to, to repentance and faith, to come back to Jesus and say, maybe there's some area of my life where I haven't trusted that what God has for me is best. And there's some repentance and some faith that needs to happen. I trust that as we spend a lot of time in 1 Peter, maybe as you've done some study of 1 Peter on your own, as we've talked about 1 Peter, that God has called us to trust Jesus, to trust that what Jesus has for us is best, whether it be in suffering whether it be in the call to be holy, whether it be in the way that we live together, whatever it might be, Jesus' way is best. And that's what God is calling us to through this book that Peter wrote. We're going to close our time together in a time of response. Uh, We do this every Sunday here um, at Redemption. And it's a time for us to respond, essentially, to what God is speaking to us through what we've heard from His Word through what, we, what, what we've heard, what God is speaking to our hearts and minds, through what we've heard from his word, through what we've sung together and prayed together in the scripture that we've read together. And, and so as we're responding, there's a couple of ways that we can respond. The band's going to come back and lead us in a few more songs, a couple more songs, give us the opportunity to worship together through singing. Uh, during this time, you have an opportunity to respond by giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can do that. There's a time for you to respond in repentance and faith and prayer by staying right where you are and maybe dealing with whatever the Holy Spirit is urging and prompting you to deal with even now. We'll also have an opportunity to respond by taking communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption, and the reason we do that is because in taking communion, we are remembering the truth of what Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming that we believe it. And so by coming down the middle aisle here, going in either direction, tearing off the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice, we're remembering what Christ did for us, and we're declaring that it's true and that we believe it. And so if you're here and a follower of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, in as much as you feel the freedom to do so, to come and to take communion, remember what Christ has done, proclaim that you believe it. If that's not something that you can do, then let me encourage you to sit right where you are, not that you would be um, pointed out. But I simply don't want to ask you to come and do something that you don't believe. Um, So we're going to continue on with those different ways of responding to what Christ is is speaking to us and working in our hearts and minds this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on with that time of response. Holy Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the few weeks that we've been able to spend working through 1 Peter and seeing what you would have for us. Thank you for the reminder that you have done something for us in Christ that we could never do for ourselves. 
and that what you've done for us is incredible, and that what you've called us to is good. It's good for us. So Holy Father, even now as we close our time together, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high, that we would continue to be drawn to you, that you would be glorified through our time together. God, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
These are the words that I'll pray. I need my sweet Lord's help today. And I need my sweet Lord's help today. was lost in darkest night yet thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy in life had led me to See 
you guys could be seated. Um, over the last, um, well, for a while now at Redemption, uh, we pray together every Sunday morning, and over the last, uh, or throughout 